So if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know that we are in the middle of a series called The Great I Am. And this series is from the Gospel of John. John is basically written by John, surprisingly enough. Um, and it's about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the four gospel narrative accounts in the New Testament. And John is particularly different because he takes quite a lofty theological um, overview of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And in there are some incredible signs and incredible statements that go to the heart of the idea the identity of Jesus, which is what the book is written about. And in there, you will find seven statements made by Jesus that start with the two words, I am, and then dot, 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 and he says different things. And there are also seven miracles in there that relate to the I am statements. And if you were here on week one of this series, you'll know that Jesus there is referring back to something that happened in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, which is basically the story of the nation of Israel's freedom, essentially, from the slavery under the Egyptians. And Moses, who was like a great hero of the Jewish faith, um, basically encountered Jesus in a bur- uh, Jesus God in a burning bush, and the bush spoke to Moses and revealed to Moses the plan that God had to set the Israelites free from the oppression of Egypt. And when he reveals this plan to Moses, Moses says, "Who am I? Like this makes no sense that you're asking me to do this. Who am I to actually tell the most powerful man in the world right now that, that he needs to let all of his slaves go free for absolutely nothing?" And instead of answering that question, God says to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. Yahweh is the Hebrew word, I am. And that's a really significant point in the Old Testament because essentially it's the point at which the relationship between God and his people becomes personal. He reveals to Moses something of his identity and as a result, the relationship becomes personal. And you see throughout the Old Testament, the people of God starting to get glimpses of what God's really like, but it's still mysterious. It's still shrouded in mystery. There's still lots of things that they discover along the way, but there's loads more to discover. They don't really know everything or all that they need to know about the God that they worship until Jesus bursts on the scene. And as soon as Jesus bursts on the scene, he starts, particularly in John's gospel, making these outlandish statements, essentially starting with exactly the same statement that God started with, with Moses in the burning bush. He says, I am Yahweh. And for any Jewish believer hearing Jesus say that, they would know exactly what he's talking about. He's basically claiming to be God. But so much more than claiming to be God, Jesus is revealing to the people of God, to the Jewish nation, and anyone who would hear what God is actually like. He starts to flesh out these statements about God. And so you find in the Gospel of John, lots of these, seven of these I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And with every I am statement, there's an accompanying miracle or sign. So he says, I am the resurrection of life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So as to show what that actually looks like in real life. He says, I am the bread of life. And Pete spoke about this last week. He then goes on to feed 5,000 people with a little boy's pack lunch. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he does it in the context of tending for his sheep. There's signs that relate to the I am statements. And so this week, we have started with the sign. So we're not looking at the I am statement yet. We started 
with the sign. I'm just going to reread this miracle here and give a little bit of context as we go along. So just the first part of this story. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. We don't know which one, but it probably doesn't matter because it's not mentioned. But it would have been one of the festivals whereby all the surrounding Jews would have come into Jerusalem so as to worship God. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gates, remember the sheep gate is relevant later, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which basically means house of mercy. So these people are lying around this pool, essentially it's called house of mercy and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who had been there and had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now I don't know about you, but when I read that, that seems like quite a harsh question to ask. I mean, here's a guy who is paralyzed and he's lying by a pool that has healing properties and Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Now, there's lots of different theories as to why Jesus asks him that. Some scholars believe that actually it's essentially giving the person a choice, that God doesn't force anything upon us, that he gives us the choice to be able to choose whether we're healed by him. And it's probably partly that. Sometimes some scholars um, say that so often, particularly if we suffer from some from a long, long time. Sometimes our sickness almost becomes a part of our identity. We define ourselves by our sickness and therefore Jesus is trying to draw that out of the paralyzed man. It could be that. Sounds a little bit harsh for him to do that. It could be that actually in the uh, kind of first century Jewish context, this guy would have actually made quite a good living from being paralyzed. He was clearly not able to support himself and because of the Jewish laws, he would have been supported by other Jewish people giving him money and food and helping, helping him on his way and therefore to be healed would have had consequences in that he would have to work again. Again, I think that's probably quite harsh to think that Jesus is asking him on that basis. Some scholars say actually he's digging for hope. This guy's been here a long time. He's been in this state a long time. He's trying to find out if there's hope. And I think that's partly the answer. But do you know what I really think is going on here? I think Jesus is looking for faith. I think he's looking for faith. Because again and again and again throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus do the most incredible things in the context of faith. What's faith? It's basically believing in something that we can't yet see. He's looking for faith in the paralyzed man. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Essentially, there were obviously geothermal pools or something and people would gather there and they believed that the first people in the pool would be healed as soon as the waters started being stirred and they believed that angels were stirring the pools and that's how they got healed. While I'm trying to get in, he says, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Amazing miracle story. That is from 2000 years ago. Let me share a story from two years ago. I was speaking at a student weekend away and there was a girl there called Anna and Anna had been in a car crash and as a result of being in a car crash, her spine had been broken in seven different places and her pelvis was shattered. And 
straight after the car crash, she was rushed, rushed into surgery, and they inserted a metal pole down her spine so as to perform just a, basically a, a preventative emergency surgery. But she was due another surgery that was uh, essentially to try and restore the pathways between her body and her brain because they were deteriorating a, at a fast rate. But as a result of this second surgery, she was very likely to be paralyzed from her waist down. And so this is a 19, 20-year-old girl who had been in this car crash and was due a surgery that meant that she'd be paralyzed, most likely, from her waist down. And she's on this student weekend away. And on the last day of this weekend away, all the students gathered around her and prayed for her for healing. And I remember going up to them and watching them pray. And all her friends who had seen her go through this horrific time, who knew that she was about to go into surgery and very likely lose the loss, uh, the use of her legs, they're weeping as they're crying for their friend for healing. The next day, um, she goes to see the consultant on Monday, and she's due a number of pre-op scans because the operation was the week after. And she goes into UCH, and she has the CT scans, she has the other scans that she needs to have. And after a while waiting, the consultant comes into the room and says, look, uh, the scans didn't work out. They've not no, they've not worked, so we're going to put you through the scans again. So they put her through the scans again. Eventually, the consultant comes back in the room after Anna's been waiting for a while and says, look, our machines are broken. We're going to put you in an ambulance, and we're going to rush you over to Paddington, to the hospital over there, and we'll do the scans over there. So they put her in an ambulance. They take her to Paddington. Um, they do all the scans again using um, different equipment, same scans. After a while, finally, the consultant comes into the room, and he sits down opposite Anna, and he says, look, this is really awkward because I know who you are, but Anna, do you have any identification on you whatsoever? And so Anna's like, it's ridiculous. She gets her driver's license out and gives it to the consultant. He checks her identity, and then he looks her in the eye, and he says, I have no way of explaining this whatsoever, but every single scan we've done today shows that your spine is completely whole. There's no breaks in it whatsoever. You've got a brand new pelvis. In fact, the pelvis you have is a totally different shape. And he had the two scans before and after. And he said, and you're two inches taller than you were before. You're totally healed. Unbelievable, medically proven healing because of people praying. I share that story partly because it's so amazing and also it's medically verified, but also because I quite like the two inches taller myself. Um, but there's loads of different stories that I've heard of or seen over the years of being a Christian. The first time I ever experienced a healing, I saw a girl literally go from not being able to see anything in her left eye for the last seven years to being healed instantly. I knew she was healed because I saw the text messages between her and her family and she could literally cover her right eye and read out of her left eye and her family could not believe it. We we had another girl at my previous church called Christina who was at the top of the heart transplant list because her valves weren't able to pump the blood around her body and essentially they couldn't just replace the valves, they had to actually replace her heart. So she's priority number one on the heart transplant list. She's prayed for on Sunday night. She goes in on Monday and her heart is functioning totally normally. So much so the consultant takes her straight off the list straight off the heart transplant list, and she's been absolutely fine ever since. I was at New Wine, which we're all going to go to as a church. I was standing next to a steward at the back of the service, and we're watching the prayer happen at the front. And the guy on stage says, there's someone here 
who had a really bad injury in their left knee. And as a result of the injury, you've had to have two metal pins put into your knee. And I think we need to pray that those pins dissolve and that you're able to use your knee properly again. This guy turns to me, he's a steward, so he's supposed to be doing his job. He turns to me and goes, that's me, I've got two pins in my knee. So we shove him up there, he gets prayed for, he comes back and he, he can't feel the pins in his knee anymore. The next year, he comes back with both the scans and shows the whole conference. They put it up on screen. Scan before, pins. Scan after, no pins. Doctors can't explain it. I imagine there's a number of reactions to these kinds of stories. For some of us, they might be hard to believe. And I think that's perfectly normal. To be honest, I wouldn't believe any of them if I hadn't seen some of them. Well, all of those I saw for myself. If we don't experience this stuff, then it goes without saying that actually it goes well beyond our sphere of what we think is possible, particularly in the Western context. Fascinatingly, in developing countries where um, medicine isn't as advanced as it is here, this sort of thing is actually perfectly normal. In fact, they have a com more complete picture of the body as a whole in terms of it being spiritually, physically, and emotionally connected. And this would be probably more normal for them. But I'm not asking anyone to believe in the miracles because actually the the beauty of these miracles and the way they're used in the Gospels and the way they're used amongst us as in church and as a church family and in the kingdom of God is they are not the point in and of themselves. They're brilliant for the people who get healed. They're absolutely amazing. But guess what? Their bodies are going to deteriorate anyway. There's one thing that unites every single one of us in this room. We will all die at some point. It's just the way, unless Jesus returns. I think I'd rather die. No, maybe not. Um, not going to talk about that. We will all die at some point. The point isn't the miracle. The point is what it points to. The whole point that they're called signs and wonders is signs are not ends in and of themselves. They point to something else going on. And I'm going to talk more about that in a second. So if you don't believe any of those stories, you don't believe any of the hearing, healing stories that you ever hear, it actually doesn't matter. I mean, hopefully we're experiencing them of our own and you'll see them for yourself. But they point to something else way more important that we're talked to in a bit. There'll be some of us in the room who are hungry for more. You would have seen glimpses and tastes of this sort of thing, and actually you want to see more of it, because as we experience these things in our midst, they're like tastes of heaven. It's like tasting heaven on earth. And we want more of it. We want to see more of it in our church. And I have no idea why sometimes we see loads of it, and then we go years without seeing any of it. There was a time in my previous church where we had two months where we met every Wednesday night and we prayed for physical healing. And we have 50 medically verified, like, red, like basically physical healings over those two months. Since then, I've probably seen about 10 in total. And that was probably about eight years ago. So I have no idea why sometimes we see lows and then sometimes we don't see any for a while. The point is, actually, as Christians, we can be hungry for more, hunger and thirst after the kingdom of God. This is the things of the kingdom. These are signs of the kingdom. There'll be others of us here who are desperate for healing yourself. So you're in here and you need physical healing. There's something that's afflicting you. And you don't have, have me to tell you this, but no matter how small something is, it can have a debilitating effect on our life, can't it? It can really affect whether we're living life in fullness, whether it feels like we're free and we're able to enjoy life. And so at the end of this talk, we're going to pray for physical healing and um, I'll lead you in it, but we're gonna pray for each other in order to be able to do it. And the one thing to notice about Jesus in the gospels is Jesus is dead set against sickness. 
Sickness is not how it's supposed to be. Sickness, by the way, also is never sent from God so as to chisel away at our moral character. That is not the New Testament worldview whatsoever. Sickness is not from God. Jesus is dead set against sickness. In fact, the Old Testament view, which is a clouded view, and it's brought into clarity and focus through the person of Jesus. Jesus is asked by some people um, about this tower that fell on some other people. And the people ask Jesus, they say, what did they do? What sin did they commit? What sin did their mum and dad commit that meant that this tower fell on them and died? And Jesus' answer essentially is nothing at all. The tower just fell over. Like, it is not from God. Sickness is not from God so as to teach us some sort of moral lesson. Jesus is dead set against it. Sometimes, sometimes we experience healing, sometimes we don't. Why that is the case is a part of the theological answer, really, which I think is insufficient, is that actually we're in this now and the not yet. We're waiting for the fullness of the kingdom of God. We see glimpses of the kingdom. But actually, if we're suffering, it really doesn't make sense, does it? Because sometimes people are healed, sometimes people aren't. But it's part of the tension that we live in where we are in our faith and then final group those of us hearing stories like that and we think that's brilliant brilliant for those people it's great isn't it that actually if something physical were to happen to me I could get prayed for for healing but actually it's not relevant to me right now this idea of healing there'll be a load of us here who are totally unaware that we actually need healing ourselves Because our brokenness in reality, and as we read the New Testament, just as we experience life, points to the fact that our wellness, obviously, is so much more than physical wellness. We can be emotionally really unwell. We can be mentally incredibly unwell. We can be spiritually unwell. And so often, I think, we're really good at actually masking the pain of those other things almost numbing it to the point where we don't notice it anymore. There was a guy, a bit of a hero of the Christian faith, called Dr. Paul Brand. And he was a medical professor, and he was an expert in leprosy. So he became world-renowned for treating those suffering from leprosy. And he ended up living in India and basically dealing with those worst afflicted by the disease. And he made some unbelievable breakthroughs in his medical career. He basically worked out that um, people suffering from leprosy would go blind really quickly. And it was because they lost the function of their eyelids. And he worked out a way, this is amazing, of basically taking a muscle from another part of the body, linking it between the arm and the eyelid so that every time someone suffering from leprosy moved their arm, it would cause their eyelid to blink. And so therefore their eyesight would continue longer because their eyes wouldn't dry out. He had these amazing breakthroughs and he wrote at the end of his time working with the people suffering from leprosy in India this paper and he wrote it and he called it the gift of pain the gift of pain because one thing that unites everyone suffering from leprosy is that they no longer feel pain so they're able to put their hand over a fire and not feel the effects of the fire but their body obviously is experiencing the effects but they're not able to feel it because the nerve endings in their body and so he wrote this article about the gift of pain and he says as normal human beings not suffering from leprosy we have this gift to tell us that there is something going on in our bodies something going in our minds that's not right and we need to find healing for it And here's the tragedy, and he wrote a bit about this. The tragedy of our age is we've learned to hit the snooze button so that we don't hear the alarm of pain. We've essentially learned to numb it 
and to push it down and to totally ignore it. Physically, this happens all the time. We become ill, don't we? And we wake up in the morning, instead of thinking our body's telling us something so that we need to rest, we shove ibuprofen, paracetamol, lens slip, multivitamins, everything we can possibly find into our body because every single one of us in the room, we are far too busy and important to take a day off work. Like the world will probably collapse if we didn't take a day off work. So this alarm bell is going physically and we hit the snooze button by numbing it. But we do this emotionally all the time as well, don't we? So we experience pangs of anxiety, we experience pangs of depression, we experience these pangs of loneliness. Loneliness is the biggest health academic, ep epidemic to face our basically millennials in our country, bigger than anything else that we're coping with right now in the NHS. And we've learned to hit the snooze button on it. It's almost like we feel these pangs of anxiety or of loneliness, and it's like we just find another series on Netflix that we can binge watch so that we can totally forget how we're actually feeling. Or we just throw ourselves into workaholism and we just work time and time again. Or we just throw ourselves into a social networks so that it means that we're busy the whole time socializing but never actually going to any depth in our relationships. We've learned when we hear this alarm to hit the snooze button. Spiritually, we do this all the time. And when we start asking questions of greater meaning, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is there any point climbing this career ladder, making this money? Is it ever actually going to satisfy me? Are these relationships really going to give me overarching meaning and purpose in my life? When we start thinking of those questions, when we start asking those questions, there are alarms in our body telling us that something needs addressing, that something needs healing. But what we've learned to do, particularly in our society, is just hit the snooze button again and to bury it, and to be too busy to even think about those things. There's a famous Christian author called Richard Rohr, and he talks about um, how we process pain spiritually, and he says there's two options when we process pain, only two, there's not a third option. Either we transform it or we transmit it. Either we transform it or we transmit it. What does he mean by transmit it? He basically means we hit the snooze button. We think we're burying it deep, but actually it just spills out in other ways. Relationships start to break down. Marriages start to break down. Our kids start to suffer as a result of suppressing this pain. Our work colleagues start to experience our anger because we're pushing it down and down and down and we're numbing it and we're trying to stop it. You can't stop it is basically what he's saying. It will spill out in some other way. You can either transmit it or he says you can transform it. You can see transformation through it. And obviously part of the answer to that is in the medical field. And that is always a good place to go. First protocol is to go to the medical field and find help in that respect. But from a spiritual sense, there is a way in which we can address the root of the issue that the alarm bell is actually pointing to. So how do we transform our pain? Well, back to the miracle. So remember, there's all these paralyzed people hanging about by this pool, and they're waiting for the waters to stir so that they can be the first in the pool so that they can get healed physically. And this pool, which was located next to the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, would have been famous in Jerusalem. Everyone would have known about this pool by the Sheep Gate. And so what would have happened when the waters started to stir is the rumor would go out, the word would go out, the waters are stirring, get to the gate, Get your, basically get people who are sick to the gate. Everyone you know who needs healing, get them to the gate. The people around the pool would have been clambering to get into the pool. It would have been a cry across the whole of Jerusalem, get to the gate. You need to get to the gate. The waters are stirring. 
And so here's the related I am statement, just five chapters later from Jesus. He says this, and he's still in Jerusalem. He's speaking to people who would have known exactly what he's talking about. He says, I am the gate. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, they'll go out, they'll find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the gate, Jesus says. I am the healing you're looking for. And that's not just physical healing. He uses in the Greek there, or the gospel writers recording him speaking, using the Greek this word sozo which essentially means salvation, but it's not just about personal salvation from sin. So that is part of the answer. So this idea of sin is essentially the things that we do in our life that is is destructive to ourselves, but also destructive to other people. It creates distance between us and other people, but it also creates distance between us and God. We need saving from that. And part of what it means to be saved in this context of this verse is to have that wiped out, to be saved from the effects of sin, to be saved from the effects of a life essentially that's been turned in on itself and therefore there's distance between us and other people and distance between us and God we're created to be in relationship and therefore Jesus can save us from that distance and he brings us back into relationship with Jesus but also with each other that's part of what he's saying there but this word sozo was way more holistic than that it would have been talking about physical healing it would have been talking about emotional healing It would have been talking about mental healing. It would have been liberation from oppression. It's what Jesus talks about in Luke 4 when he says that I have come to set the oppressed free, to let the prisoner go, to declare the year of the Lord's favour. Notice it says in verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy the faith Jesus is referring to there is the devil the devil basically is coming to do the opposite to what Jesus is doing how does he do it in our lives well I believe emotionally that's where that snooze button comes back in I think the devil is incredibly good at getting us to hit the snooze button so that we don't address those underlying pains that are going on time and time again those alarms that are going off in our life that are saying you need help there is something deeper going on that means that you need help and the devil is saying to you watch another Netflix series I use that because I do this like throw yourself back into work distract yourself go out tonight forget about it get drunk just drink you'll forget about it if you drink like that lack of intimacy that you know that you're missing in your life feed the porn addiction it will satisfy you it will mean that you don't have to deal with that That sense of fullness and purpose, just put another bet on. Place another bet, you'll be fine. It will go away, it will numb the pain. The devil is brilliant at getting us to hit our snooze button. But instead of transforming it, it just transmits it. It's destructive to us, it's destructive to those around us. If we don't feel the pain, we don't know that we need the healer. And here's what Jesus is saying to us, particularly this morning, given this I am statement. Where is it hurting? Where are you hurting this morning? For some of you, you'll know straight away because you're suffering with it. It's right at the surface. For some of you, it'll be pushed pretty far down. For me, that was always the case. I've had to learn to actually be able to hear the alarm bells myself 
I'd gotten so good at pressing the snooze button. In fact, that was just my normal state, to not even feel the pain. I was being prayed for once, and um, the guy praying for me um, said, I see this image, and I'm just, he was like, I'm just going to say it to you. And often we hear God through images. It's like images, our imagination, our mind's eye gives us pictures. It makes sense, really, that God will speak to us that way. And he says, I see you standing in front of this huge marble table, and it's dirty, it's got crumbs on it, it's got grease on it, and you're trying to wipe it down and clean it. And every time you wipe it down, you think you've got it clean. You stand back and you look at the table and it becomes dirty again, like crumbs start to appear and grease starts to come back on. All this dirt starts coming back on this table. And so you go back and you're trying to clean it again. And he said, you're getting more and more anxious, more and more frustrated. You're trying to clean this table, but it just won't clean. It keeps getting worse and worse. And he said, this is what I feel like the Lord's saying to you. I feel like he's just saying to you right now, just stop it. Just stop it. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. And then the bit that really hit me, he said, you don't need to earn favor from me. Just stop. And the reason that image was actually so powerful for me in that moment was I was actually going through a really weird phase in our kitchen whereby I was OCD about the cleanliness of our kitchen table um, and the sides because we had mice and I was like got to get rid of these mice literally OCD it was driving her down nuts I was manic about cleaning anyway so he says this picture over instantly I'm like that's weird like that's exactly what's going on in the physical but what's actually happening underneath deeper under the surface was I was suffering from a perfectionism really that was crippling to my life it was crippling everything that I went about doing everything that I wanted to achieve I basically had to leave to the last minute so that I essentially I had so much pressure on myself to do it that I just did it as fast as I could possibly if I had too much time to do something I would leave it right until the last minute to do it because if I started there I'd have this pressure that it would need to be perfect and I'd literally just do nothing right the way up until I'd leave it right until the last minute and then have to do it because it was the only way by pulling an all-nighter to do that essay or to achieve that thing that I needed to achieve and it was crippling life in all its fullness it literally felt my life had become smaller and smaller and smaller and I'd become enclosed in by it so when that word was spoken over my life and the opposite of what God was saying was spoken it was like the Holy Spirit just healed something in my body I started weeping, I started shaking, I started experiencing God in the most incredible way. And since then, and it's not a walk in the park, like you continually work this stuff out, it has been so much better, so much better, to the point where our kitchen is a mess. No, I'm joking. It's so much better, the healing that the Holy Spirit can bring. Final thing on this I am statement. If the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus comes to bring life in all its fullness. And we talk about this here, don't we? We say that actually the vision of St. Peter is to be a family on mission to bring people home. What's the mission? Well, we believe that life lived in relationship with Jesus essentially leads to a fuller and richer life. It's fullness in life itself. It's the only fullness that we can possibly get is through this relationship with Jesus. And it's the most important thing in our life. How does that relate to this I am statement? Well, here's the bit that we'd miss because we're not first century Jewish people, essentially. Basically, when Jesus says, I am the gate, it would have reminded them of this Paul by Bethesda 
but it would also have brought to mind the image for them of a shepherd. And the context of this whole passage is of Jesus talking about himself as being like a shepherd and of the sheep basically hearing his voice. And essentially what would have happened in first century Judaism is they would tend to the shepherds, would tend to the sheep on the hillside and they'd be loose. And then at night, the shepherd would uh, bring all the sheep into this pen, essentially, this um, basically fence that was there, um, surrounded on the hillside. And then in the, in the gap where the sheep would go in, there was no gate. And what would happen is the shepherd at night would literally lie down in the gap and he would become the physical gate. So all the sheep would go in and he'd lie there. So if a sheep tried to escape during that, he would know because it would have to clamber all over him. If a wolf would come to try and steal or kill, um, steal, yeah, steal a sheep, try and come and kill the sheep, he'd know because the wolf would have to clamber over him. He's lying in the gate. He is, for the shepherd, he is literally the gate stopping the sheep from getting killed. But he's also the gate that gets up and allows the sheep to come out into the pasture and to enjoy life in all its fullness. Here's the power of what Jesus is saying there by saying, I am the gate. He is saying in the context of that passage, and if you read the whole passage in its fullness, he's saying, I have come so that you are able to live life in all its fullness. You are to enjoy everything that life has on offer. You are to be the people you're created to be. The way you do it is you trust me as your shepherd. And the way that that works is essentially an intimate relationship. It's the most intimate relationship. This idea of going in and coming out, does it remind you of anything in the Psalms? In Psalm 139, a famous psalm written by David, he talks about God essentially knowing when I leave, when I lay my head down at night and I go to sleep, when I go out in the morning, you're there, you're with me. If I flee to the furthest place, the darkest place, you're there with me. It's the most intimate connection between David and God as his father. Jesus is saying, I am the gate. I am the way that you get that intimate connection. And it's through relationship with me. And it's an unbelievable truth. And this comes back to the signs that I was talking about earlier. The signs are brilliant. They're amazing. I want to see healing every week here at St. Peter's. I want it to be a normal part of what we do here, to pray for physical and emotional healing. But that is not the end in and of itself. The whole point of these is they point to Jesus. They point to life lived in relationship with Jesus, the fullness of life that we were created to enjoy. Okay, let's stand. There's a couple of groups I want to pray for. If you're here and you would like healing for anything physical, you'd like us to pray for healing for anything physical. We don't promise that you'll be healed, but we would love to pray for you for healing. Um, in a moment when we pray for people, could you come up to this side, so your right side, my left side, and just gather over here and someone will come up to you. And the model that we use here for healing is incredibly simple. Basically, tell the person praying for you what it is that's wrong. Don't go into long medical explanations. We're not doctors. Um, go into, say what's wrong, and then the person basically is gonna get you to pray for healing in the name of Jesus. And then he's, he or she is just gonna agree with your prayer and say, I agree with that, I bless you in Jesus' name, I ask for healing in the name of Jesus. You might speak to the condition and say, um, sickness be gone in Jesus' name. And then you can try it out a bit if it's something that you're feeling constantly, and then we'll keep praying. So physical healing we're going to do over there. We've got some people who are going to pray for physical healing. For the rest of us, I want to ask God um, where it's hurting right now. What's hurting right now? 
not so that we wallow in our pain. So often when we experience the Holy Spirit, we cry. And so often it's the Holy Spirit putting his finger on something that's actually quite painful. But the reason he puts his finger on it is so that he can release the pain. And that's what's happening when we're crying. He's releasing the pain. He's starting to heal us. So let's shut our eyes just so we're not distracted. And you might want to put your hands out, just a physical way of saying, God, we're open. And just in the presence of God, God is here right now. Why don't you just ask him, would you show me where I'm hurting? Show me where I'm hurting, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. 